Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, again, I have these weird transitions, called the song Fix You, which I titled our sermon off this morning, probably the most important song we've ever written. I don't know if that says anything about the sermon you're about to hear, but it does say something about the song. Penned following the death of his father-in-law, Bruce, Martin intended that the piece would help his wife amidst her grief. And as the story goes, Martin wanted to use a church organ for the track, but was unable to get one. Couldn't track one down for that, those purposes. So instead, he used an old keyboard that his father-in-law had purchased shortly before his death. And that turned out to be exactly the right instrument for the job. It was it impressed upon Martin once he heard it. When the church organ isn't available, kind of sounds like a metaphor for the Isaiah text. Here Isaiah uh, talks about God choosing someone from the wrong team. And we may not hear that as we read the beginning of our Isaiah text, or we may not hear that as we hear that text read, but indeed you couldn't have picked someone from the wrong team or more from the wrong team than this person that's named Cyrus. To the ancient Jewish hearer, that would be the case. But here Cyrus is called my shepherd. Actually, if you look one chapter earlier, he's referred to as my shepherd who will carry out all my purposes. And here in our own text, the language that's associated with him is God's own anointed. That's messianic language. So definitely we're talking about a Jewish figure here, right? One who's going to advance his countrymen's cause and guarantee the well-being and future of God's people. God's covenant promises fulfilled in and through a member of God's own people. That would be our expectation. But Cyrus is Jewish. Cyrus is not Jewish. And he's very much, underscore, very much an outsider. As we hear in the second parts of verse 4 and verse 5 of the text. You, Cyrus, the Lord. I'm not even telling jokes, I'm already cracking up. Should I keep going, or is my gravelly uh, tone here just not? Still going? Good? Can we use this one now? All right, got it. So Cyrus isn't Jewish. So is that where we left off? All right. He's the, king of per- he's the, the figure who's the king of Persia, and God has chosen him to be the instrument through which God's people will be restored. And surprising here doesn't even begin to describe the reaction that would be held by ancients in hearing this. For Jews, of course, they would meet this with disbelief. Total outsider. How could it be possible that God would use this person and use these titles for that person? But to the ancient Persians themselves, Cyrus' own people, they would rather give credit here to their regional god Marduk instead of Yahweh at this point. We know that because in a British museum, there's what's called the Cyrus Cylinder that does that. It gives credit to Marduk for the victories over Babylon by this king. But God will accomplish God's plan in and through, alongside and even outside the people of God. We need to hold on to that. We need to hold that statement, that even outside God's people, God is at work. Surprise one here is actually lesson one. God isn't constrained nor limited by our failure of imagination or our stubborn demand to be central or be in the lead position. 
I had a childhood friend who was the subject of a custody dispute between his parents. In fact, his dad kidnapped him and took him across state lines. It was that kind of dispute. For a few years, he went back when he got caught uh, to live out of state with his mom. But then he was given the choice, heading into middle school, uh, who he would live with, and he decided that he would come and live with his dad. And so as a homecoming party was announced, several of his old friends were hired by his dad to help get the house ready for the son's return. It's been a few years since I'd seen him, and so his dad hired myself, my brother, and another guy to come and, and help clean the house up and get it ready. We spent most of the day cleaning out the garage, which included sorting various nuts and bolts and assigning them to locations in a pigeonhole bin. You know those? You got one of those in your garage? It's many rows and it's many compartments. Washer here, bolt there, seal right here. You just had to do one after another, putting them in there. The work was tedious and tiresome. But when it got all finished, it was rather tidy. How's that for three T's? Pigeonholes are great for organizing small parts and cleaning up garages, aren't they? But they're not great when it comes to knowing God. And even less towards recognizing what God is up to. Writers and commentators over the years have used all kinds of language to describe God. With one particular description fitting well here, what's called God's wildness. Walter Brueggemann, for instance, observes, we live our lives before the wild, dangerous, unfettered, and free character of the living God. That's worth noting. Our taming efforts then prove ineffective. In fact, our attempts to control are quickly snuffed out, and our motivations are sniffed out. In fact, that could be a, a byline for the gospel reading this morning. God can and does achieve God's plan through insiders and uninitiated outsiders as Cyrus so reminds us. And so Isaiah isn't shy about the language he's going to employ to acknowledge the outside foreigner's very real calling from the living God. And this wildness here, this wildness of God, shouldn't come as a complete surprise, particularly for us who participate in worship week in and week out. Our corporate prayer that we'll pray, we pray each week and we'll pray later in the service, there's a line, thy will be done, right? You know that one? Remember that one? Thy will be done. Well, in some sense, it's an anti-taming prayer. It's causing us to lay bare our efforts to control, to manipulate, and fashion God to be one who is of our liking, and instead to assume an open posture to what God is up to and to join in God's mission. If wild sounds dangerous, of course, here, like wild animals, you might be part right there. You're not wrong. God isn't safe. God's not safe, at least as far as our limits of our language will allow. But that paired with something we hear in that familiar refrain from Narnia about Aslan. God isn't safe, but God is good. We hear that goodness in our text. It says in verse 4, For the sake of my servant, my chosen, that's covenant faithfulness. That's God's dogged adherence to the covenant to be faithful. And that faithfulness says something about who God is and then what God is up to. We see in verse 6, so that they may know, speaking to one who doesn't know, that God's desire is to reveal God's self. God does not desire that we be unaware. And so in God's wildness and the width in which he works, the outsider is brought near. Cyrus is brought near to be used as God's instrument 
And the insider, the one who's already initiated, is brought nearer. It's a picture of God working through all of creation to bring about God's redemptive purposes, even when those who are being used are secular authorities. Back east, we had a Christmas pageant every year, and I know it's not quite Christmas unless you go to Costco. <laughs> but in the Christmas pageant, there was a line that always drew laughter from the crowd. A kid would walk around with a sign dressed as, I guess, a modern version of what we thought a Roman soldier looked like, and would yell, pay your taxes! And everybody would laugh. It's kind of funny when a kid shouted it. It's not funny when an IRS agent says it to you. You might identify with Dave Barry's quip here. It's income tax time again, America. Time to gather up those receipts, get out those tax forms, sharpen up that pencil, and stab yourself in the aorta. <laughs> this disdain for taxes and its associated process is widespread, of course. As one quote observes, people who complain about taxes can be divided into two classes, men and women. But taxes are not just an issue for us moderns. They were for ancients as well, and perhaps more so for those living in first century Palestine. Under the thumb of foreign empire, these first century ancients most certainly found themselves choosing between accommodation, resentment, quiet protest, and even outright rebellion, and perhaps a bit of each, all at the same time. The Pharisees opposed their foreign overlords, these folks we see in this passage, and the Herodians, they cozied up to them. So kind of two different ways to uh, approach political power. But they both had political interests, for sure, of their own. But here in our text, we see that they come together in that gospel reading. They come together to test Jesus, which makes for a very strange alliance of these two groups. But that shows that Jesus was a threat to both of them. And of course, nothing good is planned from this alliance. And you'll note, if you read through this text, in Matthew, if you look at the word there about plotting, it shows up five times actually in Matthew's gospel, and every single time it happens, it's always something that is not good. So that says something about the committee work, so you can hold that. <laughs> Their aim here is, of course, to harm Jesus, to trap him into saying something that will have him either lose his audience, lose his crowd support, or his life, that he'll in fact be crushed by the Roman overlords. And here's how they set that trap. They first deal in the currency of local history. Jesus' followers are not, are not a recognized nonprofit in the ancient world, right? They have to pay their taxes. The question assumes as much, but what is challenging is whether or not Jesus will advocate here open rebellion against the pagan empire that was occupying Palestine at the time. And this question, like the show Law and Order reminds its audiences, is ripped from the headlines, or in this case, earlier local history. Early in the first century, at least two decades before this encounter, a Jewish leader named Judas of Galilee, and he's mentioned in Acts chapter 5, he led a resistance to the, to the census imposed by Quirinius. And if that sounds familiar, you know that census. We read it every Christmas from Luke 2. Apparently, he and his followers didn't want to pay Roman taxes. They encouraged their countrymen to follow suit and not to register. And if you didn't, they would burn your home and steal your property. If this is what Jesus is up to, of course, if he's going to advocate this kind of thing, then they got the trap. They can turn him over to Rome, and Rome can deal with him. The other part, though, in the trap, though, is something about the coin. There's a coin that we see in this passage. 
Jesus knows what they're up to. We see that in verse 18. He recognizes it. And instead meets their question with his own. He says, show me the coin used for taxes, as though he didn't know. Hey, go, ahead, go ahead and show me that coin. We should probably note here that locally, when they minted copper coins, uh, those ones that were minted locally omitted the emperor's portrait on them. They knew that that would create considerable outcry amongst the locals, particularly amongst the pious. But the coin shown to Jesus is the imperial denarius, which bore imperial cult imagery. There's a picture of Caesar on it. There's an inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. It even named Caesar as high priest of the Roman religion. He flipped the coin over. For the inquisitors here to be the ones who possess the coin, not Jesus, can't accuse him at this point of the idolatry that they're kind of trying to expose in him. He's not the one carrying the coin. They're the ones carrying it. That, of course, says something about their own hypocrisy, which Jesus exposed, that the questions they're asking aren't real questions. They're just trapping questions. They don't care what Jesus' answer is at this point. They just want to see him disappear and be destroyed. But Jesus here skillfully doesn't take the bait. And he doesn't encourage his hearers at this point to take up the position of the zealots and the revolutionaries. No, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he's doing that, he's playing off the answer that they've given to him. When he asks whose, whose picture is this, he uses a possessive form in the language to say that it's Caesar's possession. And so he says, so give back to Caesar what is, what is Caesar's. But then he offers something more to that. Something more that will set the course for engagement of Jesus' followers going forward with civil authorities. Civil governments, authorities have a place, is what Jesus offers here. They have a place. They have a place that a later writer Paul will say, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. We hear that in Romans chapter 13. Following that same trajectory, that same line, recognizing there is a place for these civil authorities. Reaching back to Isaiah and remember that God also works through those who are outside the people of God. God's purposes are being worked out through secular authorities. As unlikely as that might seem, particularly as we look at our own government. We think about our own institutions. And we might wonder, who's in charge here? Who's running this? The answer that comes back is God's running. And as we hear in Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is due them. And that's all quite something. But don't take that too far. That's what else Jesus will say. He says, don't take that too far, as he continues. There are limits to governmental authority. What Dale Bruner observes here is the truth of loyal but limited responsibility to political power. Jesus' charge in verse 21 to give to God the things that are God's is a higher due. He raises the bar here. It's a greater offering. Just how much more is it greater? If the coin bore the image of Caesar, and that's what's to be returned to Caesar, how much more the thing that bears the Imago Dei, the image of God, belongs to God? That we as humans have been named as a creation that bear God's image. And so the calling to give back to God what is God's raises the bar and takes us to a higher level. 
been thinking about this question about the divide between secular and sacred throughout the entire week in reading these texts and in considering the call to Cyrus the caller and I've been, I've been letting that percolate my heart and, and I, I want to just offer a couple things in conclusion for us to consider as we continue to ponder this text one comes from a quote back in October of 2017 which very much could have been written yesterday it says we live in an anxious time recent events have left many of us holding our breath when we turn to the news anticipating the next disaster right it's gotten better since 2017 has it not it's terribly important to remind our fellow Christians that we are a people of hope and that God did not abandon the exiles of Judah and does not abandon us either. That's how it continues. Our ancient faith bears witness to the power of God to redeem and restore sometimes in unexpected ways. We have received this faith and are called to live into it just as the writer of Isaiah called the exiles to live into it. To do so requires us to be a people always looking for the signs of God's work in the world. It requires us to be a people of hope. And so as we hear of God's call and working through agents that, and actors who lie outside the community for us to expand the community and understand that God's activities are there for us, that faithfulness is there for us at all times, even when we have a hard time seeing it. And so we live lives of hope and exploration, lives of expanded imagination. Which kind of leads us into the second observation here. We're in an election season. These seasons seem to get longer and longer the older I get. But in these seasons, we point to things and say, this is my person. This is who I'm voting for. This is the one I'm trusting is going to make all things right. Clean things up. And to some extent, whoever it is gets elected, whoever's in charge, whoever's running and given the authority, to lead is charged with that responsibility from our creator but at the same time we have to recognize there's limits there are limits not to put all our stock into mere mortals but to recognize that our calling is one to live a life to embody a calling of a people of God who act responsibly in society who act responsibly in the way that we conduct ourselves, but our ultimate allegiance and our faithfulness draws its strength and its resolve from the one who is always faithful, who always cares for us and loves us. And that's not a politician. That's from our very creator, the triune God, who offers us grace. This past week, we had a difficult season with our family, and we're still in that season. And I want to share a little bit about it uh, here uh, in the closing of the closing. Uh, just so that you can, you can join us in prayer um, and, and it just understand a little bit more. Um, on Friday, we, we took our, my father-in-law, uh, he entered into memory care. And so we moved him into the memory care facility. That's a real challenging thing for his kids and for his wife. There's a separation that happens there. And many of you know what that's like. You know what that experience looks like. It colors the way you read a text. It colors the way that your imagination operates for what God is up to. When you watch someone lose their memories, and even when they lose the ability to recognize you in that process, it challenges everything that you hold dear, that you believe, and that you consider where is God's faithfulness 
in the midst of that. But as I look around a care facility like that, as I interact with families and, and staff, as I talk to my own family and hear their own pain and their own struggle with that, I do so with this text alongside. A text that reminds me that God works outside the predictable categories that I try to line up. The things that I say, hey, this is the way it is and this way it has to be, otherwise God's not in it. And God pokes back at me and says, but I called Cyrus. God pokes back at me and says, give back to God what is God's, what belongs to God. And I recognize that I may not be able to see the plan in the short run, but I can still have hope. I can still have hope that God is somehow active and involved in all of this. And I can pray for imagination to see God's work even in the situations that nobody wants to live in, but which we find ourselves. May God provide each one of us the grace, the hope, and the imagination that we need to live each and every day of our lives for God's glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. A love that pokes back at us and reminds us, that calls out to us throughout history. And we hear in these texts that serve as an ongoing witness and through the power of the Spirit who is present to us even now in this space. That you, who are the God of comfort, who comes alongside us in our distress, that you are active and present. That your care and your ministry continues with us, even when we feel like we, we can't see it or hear it. Lord, show us the places where you're at work in your world that we might marvel in you once more. That we might offer our own declarations of praise and celebration. For you are good. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.